today. My branding iron is making you older with every move you make, Superman. You'll drop dead of old age before you can even reach me. Professor Zoom Productions, in association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network, proudly present for your listening pleasure, the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, hosted by Professor Zoom Yukonori. Today's episode, call him the Space Cowboy. Greetings and welcome to the second episode of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, a celebration of comic book tales that are able to tell a complete story within a single issue, a proud and hopefully worthy member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am your host, Professor Zoom Yukonori, and I am so delighted to be here. In fact, I'm as elated as a comic book fanboy seeing his favorite character in a brilliant animated television show for the first time. And I'm the co-host this go-round. The Terror Man, and I'm as happy as a gopher in soft dirt. Eloquently put, sir. Thank you, Professor. Shall we get right to it? Indeed we shall. The done-in-one wonder we are spotlighting today is Superman, Volume 1, Issue 250. Cover dated April of 1972, but according to the brilliant Mike's Amazing World of Comics website, it was on sale on February 10th, 1972. I myself first encountered this comic in March of 1974, on that very weekend in which I had first met my Uncle Kenzo and discovered the wonders of his comic book collection. Those who have listened to the first episode of this podcast may recall my recollection of sorting the disorganized portion of my Uncle Kenzo's comic book collection, and how I would frequently come across a comic book cover that essentially told me to stop what I was doing and read this story now. This Superman comic had one of those captivating covers, which was brilliantly rendered by the illustrious Neil Adams, although at the time I had no idea who that artist was. That is ace high, that cover is. Indeed. A mysterious cowboy figure stands partially off-panel in the foreground, firing a ray from what can only be described as a branding iron gun at the forehead of Superman, who is on his knees struggling to reach his opponent, while his body becomes more and more desiccated as he's becoming older and older. The cowboy snarls that the Man of Steel will drop dead of old age before he can even reach him. Ha <laughs> ha, that branding iron gimmick never gets old. Oh, wait, I suppose it does. Hehehe. <laughs> uh, yes. I suppose it's no secret that the cowboy figure in question is my friend here, Tara. I didn't hear you laughing at my joke there, Professor. Oh, uh, uh right. It never gets old. Except it, it does. That's quite witty, sir. <laughs> Shoot, Professor. I was just fun with you. You gotta learn to lighten up. Oh, uh, uh in indeed. How about I lighten up and, and you keep your alien tech modified six shooters holstered for the rest of the show, alright? See, now there you go, making with the jokes already. Me keeping my irons holstered. What a knee slapper. Ha <laughs> ha. 
let, uh, let us get back to the comic, shall we? Uh, now, now, I should mention that while I was stopped by this particular cover, I did recognize the Terror Man from another comic book that I had come across earlier in my sorting, Superman Volume 1, Issue 249, so I initially believed that this issue was the second part of a two-part story. So I pulled out Issue 249 and read that first, and it was then that I discovered that although Terror Man appeared in two consecutive issues of Superman, that these were each standalone issues. The story in issue 250 could have easily been published five or ten issues later, and would still work. In fact, issue 249 actually contained two done-in-one stories, one featuring his first battle with Superman, and another that revealed the Terror Man's secret origin. So at least I had that primer going into the Terror Man story that I really wanted to read. So before we delve into issue 250, let's have a brief recap of who Terra Man is and how he came to be. Lanos. Greetings and salutations. I am Lanos, the lexical archive of minutia, expositions, and origins. How may I serve you today? Lanos, we went over this. The Terra Man origin recap. Commencing a bridge recapitulation of the Terra Man entry from Who's Who. The Definitive Directory of the DC Universe, Volume 23, Page 19. In 1888, Jess Manning was a notorious outlaw who robbed stagecoaches. Jess was a widower with a ten-year-old son, Tobias, called Toby. Recovering from a gun wound, Jess decided to let Toby try his first solo holdup. Certainly, young Toby did a good job, stopping a stagecoach and forcing the man riding shotgun to throw down a strongbox full of gold coins. It chanced that at that time, an alien criminal called the Collector arrived on Earth. When the Collector spotted Jess and Toby looking at their loot, he decided to steal it himself. Jess fired and hit the alien in the shoulder. Enraged, the Collector fired a solar ray which fatally struck Jess. Using a mental link with the dying man, the Collector learned of Jess's plans to raise young Toby as an outlaw. Himself an outlaw, the alien decided to carry out Jess's plans for his son. The Collector used a hypnotic grid to wipe out Toby's memory of how his father had died, then adopted the boy and took him into space. But the mind link had worked both ways, and before Jess died, he placed a bullet in the ground and surrounded it with a sketch of the spaceship's shape. The Collector placed an oxygenator thermostat in Toby's body, enabling him to breathe comfortably in any atmosphere as well as in space. The Collector schooled the boy in the use of various sophisticated weapons, which Toby eventually adapted to resemble objects he recalled from his childhood in the Old West. Like the energy lasso he used to capture an Argovian space steed, a kind of winged horse, which he named Nova and rode through space. For some time, Toby, now called Terraman because he came from Earth, robbed for the Collector. But as he grew older, the memory of the figure drawn by his father took on more meaning. Finally, Terraman bushwhacked the Collector and avenged his father. Traveling through space at ultra-high speed had the effect of slowing down time for Toby, so that after nearly a century, he was still a young man. He returned to Earth, where he had his first battle with Superman, who defeated him and sent him to prison. Nova, however, was still roaming free. Thank you, Lanos. And now that we all have our primer, let us take a brief podcast promo break. And when we return, we will crack open issue 250 from the first volume of the Superman title. And let's see if the story within actually measures up to the cover.
Hey there, I'm Nathaniel with some exciting news about the Punch Like a Girl podcast. <laughs> oh, hey, hey Liz, I'm, I'm just doing the promo. Tell the people about how the podcast we do together covering graphic novels and trade collections starring female protagonists is moving. To, and um, actually, I'm, I'm mansplaining again, aren't I? Uh-huh. Well, I, I can just, um, here, here you go. Punch Like a Girl is joined in the Fire and Water Network and as of October will be found on the network feed and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Is it okay if I just invite folks to join us in celebrating the girls who kick butt? I think you already did. Yes! Nailed it! Don't worry, folks. I'll keep them in line. Sing you a song about that rogue terror man To kill Superman was his villainous plan He flew through the air on a mighty winged steed To find all the law both in word and in deed Now what caused this outlaw to ride and to shoot His hunger for power and his hunger for loot But a much stranger hunger will soon meet your eye In this surprising story called Have Horse Will Fly Well done there, Mr. Man. Uh, Terra Man. Why, thank you kindly, Professor. But we should also give kudos to Solomon Grundy on his rip-roaring banjo skills. Solomon Grundy say this ain't nothing. Solomon Grundy show you some real rip-roaring claw hammering, like Grundy done down by the bayou. Uh, banjo playing aside, this brilliant minstrel song actually opens the main story in Superman Volume 1, Issue 250. Have Horse, Will Fly. Story by Carrie Bates. Art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. Editor, Julie Schwartz. This song lines the bottom of a thematic splash page that is akin to the opening page of a majority of Silver Age DC comic stories. It is a brilliant shot of Terraman atop his winged Arguvian space steed, Nova, blasting a flying Superman senseless with a ray from a branding iron that struck him in the forehead, marking it with a red TM brand. It is a beautiful picture, no doubt, but I don't recall it actually happening that way. Yes, that is because it did not happen that way. Much like the cover, this scene depicted in the splash page does not actually happen in the story as shown which is also akin to the opening page of a majority of Silver Age DC comic stories. And speaking of stories, this story began in the Federal Bureau of Printing and Engraving in downtown Metropolis. We meet the official money checker John P. Alstrom, who was inspecting a newly printed batch of dollar bills fresh off the presses. We immediately find out in two panels that Alstrom loved the smell of the new bills, 
and that he was going to miss that sweet aroma during his two-week vacation from work. While I love the smell of money as much as the next man, I don't understand what he has to do with all this. I think you're just saying that for the listener's benefit, sir. We have two more panels with Ulstrom. One in which he left the air-conditioned bureau building and bragged, to nobody in particular, that he, quote, threw away a fortune because he found imperfections in 15 $100 bills. In the other panel, Alstrom immediately had a violent coughing fit triggered by the increasing city pollution. He thought to himself that he needed to finish constructing his portable air purifier that evening so he could continue to breathe in Metropolis without choking. Now let me get this straight. So he's a money checker and an inventor? It appears so. An ominous caption box told us to remember this man, for Alstrom alone would create weakness where there was savage strength. The only strength I see is in his coffin, but the next panel is my favorite part, where we meet, and I quote, the most dangerous criminal the world had ever seen. That panel's talking about me, the Terror Man, when I was serving time after my first bout with Superman. I must say, this is amazing how these picture pages accurately recorded my thoughts about the prison system at that time. Inadequate heating, crude plumbing, unsanitary living conditions everywhere I looked, prisoners herded about like cattle, little success at rehabilitation, young'uns with minor offenses exposed to the bad influence of the criminals inside. What kind of civilized law allowed all of this? Well, I understand there had been some prison reform in the U.S. since 1972 that I would hope had improved the civil rights of prisoners somewhat, but I cannot honestly say from experience that I... And the final straw, food so terrible it ain't fit for a starved coyote, made me so mad I started a ruckus in the mess hall that got me thrown into the hole. You mean solitary confinement? You bet. An empty cell with no bed, no lights, not even a window. I swore right then and there that nobody was ever going to put me behind bars again. A rather lofty goal, given the number of incidents in which Entity Terraman had... Now don't you even say it, Lamo. Anyhow, it was at this point that I decided to call on Nova to spring me. If you would permit me, let me inform the listeners that your prison scene essentially covered the last panel of page 2 and all of page 3, with your whistling for Nova taking up a small inset panel at the top of page 4. I have no idea what you mean by inset, but I like what the wordy box says about me. Ah yes, to quote, Remember this man, and fear him, for he wields enough destructive might to ravage an entire planet. That ain't no blusteration there, no sir. That there's the honest truth. Actually, according, according to, to my, my records, Entity Terraman... Don't say it, lame Anyway, the story cut to Superman, flying high during his nightly vigil over Metropolis. His superhearing detected a high-frequency whistle far beyond the range of human hearing. The Man of Steel noted that the sound was coming directly from the state penitentiary, and also noted that that was where the Terraman was. The final panel of page four has a montage of two scenes that had taken place in the previous issue of Superman. One is a majestic scene of Terraman riding Nova, who was rearing up and spreading his wings, and then another shot of Terraman fanning his six-shooter as he fired a volley of atomic bullets at Superman's chest. Superman lamented that he knew nothing about who Terraman was or from where he came, as he was not privy to the secret origin story in the previous issue. 
Superman, however, did realize that Terraman's weapons were devastating enough to harm even him, and noted that he could still remember that spine-chilling threat, Earth isn't big enough for the two of us. Spine-chilling threat. Hoo-hoo, I had no idea I got the super glute all spooked like that. Apparently so, and that is no small feat, sir. Superman immediately headed toward the prison to make sure Terraman was securely locked away. Aw, oh, but he was too late, because my Nova already arrived at the pen, and following my telepathic commands, he hovered outside of the solitary confinement area and beat his mighty wings to create enough suction to tear a corner of the prison clean off. That is a very impressive panel of the prison walls tearing away. A thing of beauty, that is. Once the hole was big enough, I hopped onto Nova and we done burnt the breeze as we made our escape. With Nova's wings flapping so fast, they blew away all the bullets the guards had fired upon us. And if I did not actually see it with my own eyes in this beautiful panel by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson on page 6, I would believe that what you just said would be a load of horse feathers. Well, ain't you the flannel mouth comedian. Bully for you. Anywho, me and Nova didn't get too far, for that red cape varmint Superman cut off her path and done near spooked my horse. But I had a fake tooth made of concentrated gravita gold that took care of him. Yes, it is a pretty interesting device. You threw it onto Superman's chest and it burst open to form a gold sheath over Superman's entire body. Yep, spread like wildfire it did, while increasing his weight exponentially. So much so he couldn't fly no more. And the look on his face as he hits the ground, <laughs> he's not so much the tall hog at the trough now. Uh, right. The gravity gold effect would keep soups grounded for hours, long enough for me and Nova to get up to my huge orbiting spacecraft. That's invisible yet. Only me and Nova can see it. It must be pretty large for the horse to enter. Is there a cargo bay you use as a stable or... A stable? Shoot, I's got me a full-blown 200-acre ranch in there. Now really, Mr. Manning... You got me, Professor. I was just pulling your donkey's tail. I should point out that I liked how you took the time to remind my 10-year-old self about your oxygenator thermostat device that's implanted in your lung to enable you to breathe and be comfortable in the extremes of outer space. Oh yeah, I can't help but sing the praises of that gadget in my innards. And it's quite a coincidence that I was thinking about it just now, given that- Uh, why don't you keep that under your hat there, partner? We don't want to spoil it for the listeners. Oh yeah, right, right. Anywho, the first thing I did back at my ship was change out of them drab prison clothes and into my regular duds, and pull out my latest device designed to send Superman to Boot Hill. I especially like this changing scene at the bottom of page 8, with the three mirrors and how they show your full costume, your hat, and your sidearm. Yes sir, I set them up that way to add emphasis, especially the magnifying mirror from my holster and rocket iron. So here is where you say you plan to lure Superman out by making, quote, a ruckus like this world never seen. That's right. What's your point? I have two points, actually. First, the next page shows that hours later, the Gravita Gold's effect had faded enough for Superman to fly again, so he takes a quick trip through the sun to vaporize all traces of that gilding compound. That is a mighty neat trick. I also like how the artist captured every step of that in one single swoop. 
Yes, it is a clever artistic device that is often used in comics, but of course this was the first time I had actually seen it, with ten-year-old eyes, I might add, so I still find this particular example to be especially clever. But back to my first point, you had left Superman pinned to the ground with Gravitagold. Yeah. For hours. Yeah. And you remembered where he fell. Yeah. So since you knew where he was, why did you need a plan to draw him out? Why did you not just go back there straight away and simply... I couldn't go back there right then on account of... Well... Uh, what, sir? I... I had the backdoor trots. Sir, we all agreed that we were not going to use that brand of humor on this podcast program. I ain't joking with you, Professor. I already told you about the prison food. It left me with a real nasty... Enough. Forget I asked. Let's just move on with the story. We left off halfway through page 9, which was the next morning, and Clark Kent had just stepped out of his apartment building on the way to work, and he was stopped by a voice that said... Mr. Kent, do you smell it? In the next panel, we see that the voice was coming from a man whom Clark described as his, quote, eccentric neighbor who lived down the hall, and it happened to be Mr. John P. Alstrom. Him again. As Alstrom approached Clark, we could see that he was wearing a weird face mask that looked like a combination of nose plugs and, uh, uh ball gag that hey now i thought we also agreed that we weren't going to use any of that brand of humor on this here wonder show that looked like it was made from the head of a microphone there was also a valved air tube connected to the base of the ball uh microphone head and ran over his right shoulder and behind the back of his neck i like how kent thinks this alstrom yahoo is a bore and is looking all blue at him he seems to like putting up with this guy as much as i do Yes, that is a more, well, let's just say human portrayal of Clark Kent than uh, what I had seen on the Super Friends program. Kent asked Alstrom what it was that he was supposed to smell, and we have to turn the page for the answer. The smog, of course, Alstrom replied, and then immediately proceeded to list them all. Carbon monoxide, hydrocarbons, smoke ash, sulfur oxide. They may be hard to see, but they were all killer gases. Surely you smell the pollutants, he said to Clark as he finished his explanation. Kent realized that while Superman did not need air, Clark Kent needed to breathe so he would not be too conspicuous. <sniffs> ah, yes, now I smell them, Clark replied. What was he talking about? How he should breathe. Course he should. Even with my oxygenator thermostat, I still need to breathe or else I'd keel over and die. I really love this panel on page 10 of Clark Kent sniffing the air. Even though it's a static image, I could actually see the motion of Clark lifting his head back to take a big whiff through his nose. He also appears to be a little snobbish, which is in line with how he is politely tolerating his boorish neighbor. Clark asked Alstrom about his mask, and Alstrom explained that it was a purifier of his own invention. It acted as an air filter that allowed fresh, untainted oxygen to enter his lungs. Alstrom bragged that he had been outside for hours and would have been wheezing and coughing if not for the purifier. Clark asked Alstrom if the smog was really that bad, and Alstrom showed Clark an air quality index that he tore from that morning's Daily Planet. Man, eccentric doesn't even begin to describe this wacko. The index showed the pollution level to be beyond the unsatisfactory mark and approached the unhealthful level. 
Ulstrom declared that something should be done about it. Clark agreed, but commented that even Superman had been stymied coming up with an effective pollution solution, and Clark should know. That's right. He's one of Superman's best friends. Practically a wheel horse, the big blue whaler. Mr. Ma- uh, Terraman, are you actually reading this story with me? I am, I am. Well, mostly looking at the pictures. I really pay attention to the parts where I'm in it. Ah, I see now. Hmm. Uh, Clark waved goodbye to Ulstrom as they parted ways, with Clark on his way to work and Ulstrom going in the other direction. Ulstrom started to immediately have a breathing attack as he was crossing the street, which he obviously was doing at the last minute because the crosswalk signal behind him clearly read, Don't walk. A more sensible woman watching from the curb of the sidewalk gasped that, That man needs help! Turning to page 11, we see that Ulstrom had passed out and collapsed in the middle of the crosswalk, and a speeding motorcyclist whizzing past the stopped cars through the green light just noticed that he would not be able to stop in time. The woman from the curb screamed that the bike would run over the fallen Ulstrom, which alerted Clark Kent to the situation. With all of the onlookers' eyes turned toward the impending tragedy, no one noticed Clark Kent streaking past them at invisible super speed. What the sham heel? In the next dramatic panel, Clark Kent, moving too quickly to be seen, landed perpendicular over Ulstrom's fallen body and essentially performed a push-up so the back of his body formed an up-ramp that made the motorbike jump over them. Clark would stay there just long enough for the bike to go over them, but not long enough for him to register in the spectator's eyes. One onlooker behind the woman at the curb proclaimed that that motorcyclist must have been a, quote, stunt driver. Now wait just a minute. The top panel of page 12 continued the scene as the motorcyclist sped off, looking back over his shoulder and wondering how he did what he had just done. And the Swanderson art team employed a very clever use of motion lines going over Alstrom's body as if it went up an invisible ramp, which essentially gave us a view of how the onlookers saw the event, for Clark Kent was nowhere to be seen. In the next panel, we see that Clark took off high above Metropolis, tearing open his shirt to begin an airborne change into Superman. Now hold on there, partner. Are you saying Superman and Clark Kent are the same person? Uh, why, yes. Are you saying you have not looked through any of the Superman comic books while you've been here? How about that? I always took Clark Kent to be a yellow-bellied juniper, and I always wondered how he could have been one of Superman's friends. Oh, so that explains how I was able to chaw up my plans to kill him at Buzzard Gulch, that old four-flusher. Show host and audio editor's note. Terraman is referring to the events that transpired in Superman Volume 1, Issue 278. Now I realize it. Superman must be so lonely he has to pretend to be someone else so he could be his own friend. I feel right sorry for him now. Well, maybe just a little. Back to the second panel of page 12, in which Clark was changing to Superman. I should point out the added detail of showing the smog hovering over the city, since that was both a key plot point and a soapbox topic for this story. I also like how the caption box in the next panel explained that Superman compressed his Clark Kent clothing into a secret pouch of his cape, which I never knew before, and otherwise I might have wondered what happened to said Clark Kent clothes. Superman removed the purifier device from Ulstrom's face as he started to pick him up. A police officer on the scene proclaimed how lucky it was that Superman happened to be just passing by. Superman picked up Ulstrom and flew him over some buildings on their way toward a hospital, noting that Ulstrom's filter invention was defective and actually started to poison his air supply instead of purify it. 
The next page had taken place at Metro County Hospital several hours later, where Ulstrom, now shirtless, regains consciousness atop the portable bed of an examination room. Why are we spending so much time with this Ulstrom dude? When are we getting to the part where I take the starch out of that super stuffed shirt? Patience, Terraman. There is a lot more going on behind the scenes of this adventure than you may have realized. I'm not a patient man, Professor. Make it quick. I will do my best, sir. The doctor in the examination room, whom I will call Dr. Exposition for reasons that will soon become obvious, looked up from one of his diagnostic machines and told Ulstrom that he might have died if Superman did not bring him there right after he collapsed. Ulstrom does not remember anything after he passed out on the street, and the doctor led Ulstrom to stand behind an unshielded x-ray machine in the corner of the room to take a look at his lungs. The view screen then showed Ulstrom's sternum and ribs, and a large green cloudy mass behind them that we are to surmise were his lungs. We also have a nice panel of expository dialogue which explained the condition of black lung. Have you ever heard of it, Terraman? Well, sure I have. It's black, black lung. lung. A medical, a medical condition, condition caused when, when tiny particles of coal dust coat the, the lungs of miners who had been inhaling it for several years. Show off. That is exactly how Alstrom explained it on panel 3. Now I had thought the green was the normal color of the x-ray view screen, but based on the doctor's explanation of panel 4, I surmise that this is actually a full color x-ray scan and that Alstrom had something the doctor was calling green lung. Error. Color X-ray scanning devices did not exist on the planet Earth in the year 1972. I am not even sure that they exist now, Lenos. I mean, there are color X-ray scanners, but my understanding is that the color is used to identify different organs or objects in the body and do not necessarily show the actual color of said organs or objects as they would appear. Some of these so-called X-ray machines may not even be using X-rays at all, but ultrasound or some other type of scan... Perhaps Dr. Ange or any other medical professionals out there in podcast listening land can clue us in on this further. But in the context of this story, the DC Universe of 1972 did house a host of alien and technologically advanced civilizations that have interacted with Earth's society. So I suppose it should be no surprise to see technological wonders in that society that may not sync up with the real world at that time. We will actually see another non-existent technical wonder in a few pages. Back in the examination room, Dr. Exposition was perplexed because he had never seen a condition like Ulstrom's green lung before. Ulstrom immediately realized to himself that it must have been caused from his years of exposure to the fumes from the money ink at the printing bureau. Dr. Exposition then explained that Ulstrom's purifier device, which he tried to politely refer to as a contraption, had an imperfection that intensified certain rare gases Ulstrom was inhaling from the atmosphere, and that those gases had a, quote, weird effect on the air sacs in his lungs. Now that Ulstrom was awake, the doctor could run more tests and review Ulstrom's medical history to find out more. Ulstrom immediately refused and bolted from the examination room, putting on his shirt and overcoat and ignoring the doctor's protests. Ulstrom did not want the doctor to find out about his work, because he believed that if his employers found out that he was sick, then he may lose his job. Before we continue, I should point out again the incredible artwork by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, and the wonderful way they portray Alstrom as a typical middle-aged man. He has a receding hairline, a slight double chin, he's a little heavyset but not overweight, and very, very little muscle tone. His posture is also a little hunched. Now, I did not fully appreciate this when I had first read this comic at age 10, 
but later I saw how a number of other comic book artists would use a limited number of body types for their characters, and they were more often than not that of a superhuman quality. So when an Alfred Pennyworth or Commissioner Gordon type of character was seen shirtless or wearing tight clothing for some reason, they would sometimes sport a chiseled physique. Penciler Kurt Swan was one of those rare exceptional comic book artists that could draw so-called ordinary people that looked like real people, of various shapes, sizes, and ages. And Inker Murphy Anderson was another one of those brilliant artists who could draw a variety of distinctive characters. So I am sure he had a hand in providing any distinguishing details to Kurt Swan's penciled figures. And this particular story offered several examples of the ordinary citizens of Metropolis reacting to various events that occur in this story. And there are no two people who looked exactly alike. It was simply brilliant. Let us get back to the story, which we had left off at panel 2 of page 14. Page 14. We're more than halfway through this here chronicle. We haven't even gotten to my big ruckus yet. Not yet. Ulster made a hasty exit from the hospital, most likely skipping out on paying the bill, then took a deep breath of the awful metropolis smog, and... he felt great. He was surprised that he was no longer wheezing and coughing up a storm. Ulstrom believed it was the so-called weird effect from his purifier, of which Dr. Exposition had spoken. It somehow strengthened his lungs so that the pollution did not seem to bother him anymore. Elated, Ulstrom lifted his chin high and spiritly walked the downtown streets, thinking, No more clipping the daily air indexes for me. At last I am free from the curse of the city's foul pollutants. Ulstrom passed a newsstand where a man was paying for a copy of a magazine which I'm sure he read only for the articles, paying with a dollar bill to the news dealer. In the next panel, the wonderfully rendered curmudgeon of a news dealer held the bill in front of the man. Hey, what are you handing me, he said. This is a piece of blank paper. The man stammered, but, but it wasn't blank when I gave it to you. When the puzzled customer reached into his wallet for another bill, he was surprised to find that the hundred dollars in new bills that he had just withdrawn from the bank were all blank. And this is a good time to pause for another brief podcast promo break. And when we come back, we'll see a ruckus like this world has never seen. And finally get to the part of the tale we'd all been awaiting to see. Indeed we shall. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Doctor Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Adam Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle Nort And many, many more. Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Declaration, I am Murder Mech, 
Intercorp Death Droid, Classification 42119. Observation. You are listening to Professor Zoom on the Thunder One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. He'll be back. After a long day of criminal activity, there's nothing I like better than to sit down and listen to the old radio. Wait a minute, that's not a radio, it's... Plastic Man! Plastic Man! Plastic Man! That's right, it's the Plastic Cast, a brand new podcast dedicated to Plastic Man. I'm your host, Max Romero. Together, we'll be talking about Plastic Man in the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and every other age you can think of, right up to his upcoming reappearance in DC Rebirth. We'll also be talking about any Plastic Man news that might be coming up, and his appearances in every media from comics to cartoons. Makes me woozy just to think about it. I hope you'll join me to talk about the longest arm of the law, here on the Plasticast, here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Plastic Man! Welcome back to the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. I am here with the one and only Terra Man, an Earthman taken from our world while still a boy in the days of the Old West, and who was trained and outfitted with super scientific gadgetry by an alien outlaw, only to return to his native world a century later as the meanest desperado ever to ride the spaceways. That's right, and I'm here with Professor Zoom. What? It, it would have been, been customary, customary Terraman, to, to present an equally favorable reintroduction of your co-host. Oh, now I ain't good at making with the taffy. Perhaps you, you can express your gratitude to Zoom Yukonori for saving you from certain oblivion by bringing you here from the Earth-1 universe before it was erased from existence by the crisis on infinite Earths. Wait, he did what now? It is all right, Lanos. Let us get back to our review of the main story in Superman Volume 1, Issue 250, Have Horse, Will Fly. In the first 14 pages, we have seen the Terra Man's mini-documentary on the faults of the American prison system in the early 1970s, followed by the spectacular breakout through the awesome pinion prowess of his Arguvian space steed, Nova. Terra Man also grounded Superman with a toothful of gravitagold, while he made his escape to a hidden spacecraft for a change of clothing, as well as to devise a scheme to eliminate the Man of Steel. We'd also met story hog John P. Alstrom, official money sniffer at the Federal Bureau of Printing and Engraving. He's also a bit of an old croaker, going on about how the air in the city was getting from bad to worse. He's also an inventor that created a purifying device to help him breathe in the heavily polluted metropolis. Except it had a kink in it that made him pass out while jaywalking in front of a motorcycle that would have done run him over. Except he was saved by Clark Kent. And did y'all know that Clark Kent was Superman? Ain't that a surprise? We found out later that Alstrom had a case of green lung on account of him being a cross-grained money sniffer, you understand. 
and that that pure old fire intensified some rare gas in the air that had a weird effect on his lungs so he could now breathe the smog with no trouble. Oh, and some guy that was obviously aspiring to be a playboy because he was buying a magazine about him, well, he got all difficulted when he found out all of his actual was now a bunch of worthless blank paper. And this was just the start of this new mystery. As we continue on page 15, the now-refreshed John P. Ulstrom continued his leisurely stroll downtown and happened upon the Palace Movie Theater, which was playing The Good, The Bad, and The Hungry, a spaghetti western that Ulstrom really wanted to see. First, though, he had to go to the bank and cash his vacation check before he could buy a ticket for the next show. And as he left to do that, the woman in the box office was perplexed as she saw her entire stock of new dollar bills in her cash box had suddenly turned white. But not the old bills, I see. A rather flummoxing situation, that is. Meanwhile, inside the theater, a showing of the movie was already in progress. On the screen, a band of armed gunmen were closing in on a discrepant shack, daring the unseen person hidden inside to come out and face them. And as we turn past the advert page, wham, me and Nova burst through the screen and done spooked all them highfalutin' yahoos. Yeehaw! That was sure to draw that old super sidewinder to my trap. And that leads me to my second point from your comment on page 8 earlier. Now please do not misunderstand. Mr. Swan and Anderson crafted a splendid shot on page 16 of you and Nova smashing through the movie screen and flying over the crowd of panicked moviegoers. Ha <laughs> ha, look at that dandy thar, screaming like a little girl. He's all, eek, it's the terror man, <laughs> And again, this is another wonderful example of Mr. Swan and Anderson depicting more distinct, everyday people of various ages and body types. However, what? Was this what you meant on page 8 by, quote, a ruckus like this world has never seen? Yes, sir. Bursting through a movie screen? In the middle of a western movie? A Paschetti western, you said. Uh, according to Alstrom, yes, but really, Mr. Manning. I have to ask you one question, Professor. Have you ever seen a flying horse burst through a movie screen like that before? Well, no. I rest my case. You rest your... Have you been watching my Perry Mason DVDs? Nope. Matlock. Ah, well, let's see how well this stunt had drawn Superman out, shall we? On the next page, Clark Kent was at his office in Galaxy Broadcasting, for this was during the time when he was an on-air roving reporter on the television. Clark lamented that he had to change into a spare suit in that office because his saving Alstrom from the motorbike on page 11 had resulted in black tire treads down the back of his blazer. This was a wonderful human and humorous moment that gave us a refreshing pause to the story. Heh, <laughs> unlike the unrefreshing pauses with John P. Alstrom. Okay, we've got it, Terraman. Moving on. Before we get to the next panel, an electronic voice is heard off-screen, as it were. Kent. We see that the barking voice belonged to Clark Kent's boss, Morgan Edge, calling him on what was referred to as a pictophone, which was essentially like a desktop computer monitor that acted as a two-way video intercom. I remembered that it looked really cool to my ten-year-old self when I had first read this. Looking at it now, with a circular video screen surrounded by an oblong white oval casing, 
It just looked like a giant desktop eye that was always watching you. <sighs> and just like the full-color x-ray machine we had seen a few pages before, the Pictophone was another example of modern-day technology that did not yet exist in 1972. And at least the video conferencing I use today does not just suddenly snap on and essentially spy on myself and what I'm working on at any given moment. Anyway, Morgan Edge told Clark about what the Terra Man had done at the Palace Theater and that he was on a flying rampage through town. What? It's absolute bosh what he'd just been spouting. Me and Nova kept kicking up a row with that fancy magic lantern show until... Let us not get too ahead of ourselves, Mr. Manning. As Edge demanded Clark to head down to the theater to cover the story, Clark flashed his heat vision at the Pictophone monitor to blacken the screen, so Edge could not see Clark pull open that rather ugly pinstripe suit to reveal his Superman costume underneath. Now that ain't something you see every day, I reckon. You really have not been reading these Superman comics, huh? Edge complained about how his intercom never worked and is calling for Kent to respond, while Superman flew out the window and then over the city, realizing that Terraman was goading him for a showdown. Superman passed over the third Metropolis bank, where a teller's voice declared that she had presented John P. Alstrom with, yeah. with the full amount of his vacation check, $445.76, in cash. In the final panel of page 17, Alstrom happily left the bank, pocketing his money in his overcoat, while some of the bank workers became alarmed by what was just discovered in the vault. On the next page, two bank workers, who were again shining examples of unique everyday people brilliantly rendered by the Swanderson art duo, they discovered that all of their new money, over a million dollars worth, had also faded into worthless blank paper. And again, a stash of old money is off to one side, unfected. So this subplot has intrigued you, has it? Heck no. I'm just humoring you till we get to my favorite part of this here story, which is right now. I left my Nova hitched up at the corner of that little stairwell shed on the roof of that fancy theater, sure that Superman would spot him. You know, the caption box merely says it is, quote, a rooftop on Metropolis. And I'm a-telling you, Professor, it's the fancy theater roof. You gonna trust the words on that there page, or the man who was there and lived it? Fair enough, Mr. Manning. Please continue. I had a hunch Superman would try to secure Nova first before coming after me, so as I could not get any help from my horse later. Little did he know that I was hiding around the other corner of that there Starwell shed, with my teched-up branding iron. I notice it is not a gun as shown on the cover. My pa always told me to never judge a book by its cover. Uh, right. We will get to that a little later. Hey, looky thar. Them box words are calling me the sagebrush Satan. I mighty like the sound of that. Anywho, as Superman was making his landing, I took careful aim and blasted my energy brand on the big galoot smack in the forehead. The impact kept him down for only a moment, long enough for me to give him far warning. Fair. We just saw how you essentially bushwhacked Superman. Hey now, partner. I ambushed him far and square. At least far enough when dealing with a fast-flying dude with all them fancy powers. Even with everything that is happening on this one page, from the discovery of the blank bills in the bank vault to your tagging of Superman with your branding iron weapon, my favorite panel is actually the last one. 
a worm's-eye view of the fallen Superman who lay senseless in the foreground, with particular focus on the TM brand on his forehead, while you were approaching from the background, your poncho flowing over your shoulder as you strode forward. There was just so much motion depicted in this static image, and without the use of the motion lines that were employed in the previous panels. Well now, I particularly like that first panel on the next page, where I stand over the so-called Man of Steel, and I said to him, I'm a warning you, Superman, don't try to fight me, or else. And of course the super showboat don't listen. He grabbed me by my boot and lifted me up with one hand, saying, or else what? Of course he found out straight away. I pulled out my rocket gun and fired a shot that lifted me out of his grip, and at the same time blasted a spot on the roof to make it all shiny as a mirror so old Soups could get a good look at himself. I loved the look on Superman's face when he saw just how that small bit of super strength started to give him wrinkles and some gray hair. Seeing how Soupy was all sixes and sevens, I decided to let him in on what I had done to him. My Brandon Iron made it so every time Superman used a superpower, it would make him grow older at a super fast rate. Hyper aging. The more he'd come after me, the closer he'd get to dying of old age. Pretty clever, huh? It was a devious scheme, Mr. Manning, though a bit slower than what we saw on the cover. That's true, but I'm in no rush. I want to savor watching Superman wither himself away. And cause he was such a staunchy do-gooder, he was sure to keep trying to come after me, no matter what. I see you were looking a little green in the gills, literally, on panel two as you were finishing this explanation to Superman. Yeah, all of a sudden I had a little hitch in my giddy-up just then. But I had no idea how sickly I looked. At first I thought I was just getting too excited to breathe proper. Superman noticed your slight weakness and tried to use his x-ray vision on you to find out why you were suddenly clutching your chest. <laughs> Little did he know my duds were energized to warp them supervision beams right back at him. And the reflected beams somehow knocked Superman back. Oh yeah, my energy field added a little kick to him, and that little stunt cost him a few more precious years of his life. I then used my rocket gun to launch myself away while the loggy supercoot tried to pick himself up off the roof. Thought he should stew in his own juices for a while. Uh-huh. Did you just leave Nova there on the roof? Oh no, I set him loose. You just didn't see that. Ah, well, what we do see on the top of page 21 is a now much older Superman, revealing that his X-ray beams managed to connect for a split instant long enough to see your oxygenator thermostat in your right lung and recognize it as an artificial breathing apparatus. Superman got a look at that? Aw, oh, dang. And in the next panel, we see that a TV news camera crew was on the next roof filming the last few moments of your rooftop battle and decided to rush it back to the studio in time for the 6 o'clock news. I'm assuming this is the Galaxy News Studio, though the pages really do not say... And so, 33 minutes later, people in living rooms across the city saw the deterioration of their mighty protector, Superman, into his, quote, tragic, shriveled age state, and branded with the mark of the Terra Man. The newsboy called me a fantastic desperado, still on the loose and a threat to the safety of everyone. I mighty like the sound of that. And they call me unabashedly conceited. The news report then switched to a story about another crisis in the city, 
the mystery of how over one million dollars in newly printed bills had mysteriously turned blank. We are now at the top of page 22, which the caption box said is checking in on the, quote, money-hungry John Alstrom. Wait, he don't just snort money, but now he's eating it too? I believe the caption box was starting to let on that Alstrom was responsible for what was happening to the money, albeit a bit early. You know, now that I think about it, Alstrom was near all of them places where the money had done did a fight out. I noticed that as well, sir. At any rate, Alstrom was lamenting about how you, Terraman, ruined his afternoon plans because of the damage you had caused to the movie theater. As he continued his stroll around town, he had inadvertently made his way toward the printing bureau where he had worked, just in time to see you coming out of the front door with two large bags of newly robbed, newly minted bills. I spoiled the vacation day of that botheration? Well, good. He's been a-spoiling this retelling of the story for me just by being in it so darn much. Meanwhile, high above Metropolis, the elderly Superman continued to accelerate his age with every second of super-speed flight. Superman held a device which he called an Atmos Analyzer, which was showing the presence of a new, unknown gas in the city's air. He deduced that this mysterious gas was the cause of Terraman's sudden weakness and he was essentially risking his life to use the Atmos Analyzer to quickly track the gas to the source, which was the Federal Bureau. Ah, uh, so that was how old Soups was happening by the Federal Bureau just then. He already looked like he was as old as the hills. I figured one more super stunt would make him bite the dust, so I dropped my loot and started to put on my special power glove. Meanwhile, Alstrom stared at the caped elder in disbelief and wondered if that old fossil could really be Superman. Oh, he sure was. And my power glove essentially boosted my strength a hundredfold. More than enough to splatter the old supercoot all over the territory. Look at me land that sock dollager in his gut there on panel two. I got the cleanest plow real good. You must admit, that was not much of a fair fight. Far. I told you before, Professor, that with all them crazy powers he got, I don't care a continental about going all according to Hoyle in a row with Superman. Besides, I'm a bad guy. Meanwhile, Alstrom realized that the old man in the Superman costume was actually Superman changed into an old man, and planned to sneak away into the bureau to get to the weapons locker. Was that? I didn't hear what you were saying on account of my reliving how I knocked that old pod into a cocked hat on panel four thar. I was surprised that Superman didn't put up any fight. I figured my power glove and his hyperagent made him turn yellow. Once I slammed him on the ground, old Soup stopped moving. He weren't breathing, and I didn't feel any heartbeat. I was sure at that moment that he was dead, and I killed him. And before you could gloat any further, an off-panel voice called you a rotten varmint. Oh, and thems were fighting words, partner. So I immediately stood up and faced off the stranger, demanding the name of the one who dared to... What in jumping blue blazes? That's right, it was John P. Olstrom, pointing a gun that he had procured from the Bureau's weapons locker at Terraman to make a citizen's arrest. I presume he also called the police as well. Wait, this Olstrom dude is that guy? Well, if that don't take the rag off the bush, I got a lot more respect for him now. Wait, you actually did not know? I thought you were just pretending earlier because, well, well, you were there, and he told you his name. Well, I didn't catch his name, nor did I get a real good look at him, on account of what happened next. 
At the time, I thought it was just some addle-headed yahoo, but I must admit I did admire the spunk on this Alstrom feller. Game as a banty rooster he was, trying to arrest the man who killed Superman. Or so I thought. Why don't you tell the podcast listeners what did happen next, Mr. Manning? Well, I thought it was only far to let this potshot know that I could outdraw him six ways to Sunday. But as I was doing so, I suddenly couldn't breathe. Something was interfering with my oxygenator. That unknown gas Superman was referring to two pages ago. Yeah, we know that now. But at the time, it got so bad that I couldn't see. I could just make out a hazy outline of that dad burn idiot, but that was enough. I challenged him to a draw on the count of three, and I emptied my iron into him before he could fire a single shot. It was after that that my vision started to clear, and there was that dyed burned Superman shielding Alstrom from the bullets. Somehow he brisked up and was looking as young as he used to be. Then like a shot he flew forward and knocked me so senseless that I barely remember him doing it. You know, if we go back to page 23 and the sequence of panels where you were... Putting the beat down on Superman. <laughs> yeah. We can actually see Superman becoming steadily younger with each panel. Well, yeah, I saw that too. I figured that was kind of my slatting the life out of him. And that was also what Superman had figured out. As you had said, Superman's hyper-aging only occurred when Superman used his powers and exerted himself. So he just realized that if he did the opposite, avoiding the use of any superpowers whatsoever and stopping all functions of his body metabolism, the aging effect would reverse itself. It also faded out the TM brand and essentially brought Superman back to his, uh, old self again. Huh, so that's how he done it. Well, at least I got to clip the horns of that super ombre for a spell. Inquiry. Was, was not Superman's invulnerability, invulnerability technically, technically a superpower? It was, Lanos. And at age 10, I did not really wonder about that. But now that you're asking me at age 54, I would say that the hyper-aging effect was tied more to Superman exerting himself than using his powers per se, which meant that any power that he had to physically use, like his strength, or mentally switch on, like flight and his vision powers, would trigger the effect. I do not think that any automatic powers, you know, the ones that are essentially always active, such as his invulnerability, would actually count. I would also like to think that the level of his invulnerability would be weakened somewhat as he aged. Huh. <laughs> Soupy said I'd never know how he got out of that hyperaging trap. But I know now. It may have took four to five years, but I actually know. Who's the smart one now, you old... Uh, Superman cannot hear you, Terraman. This version of Superman had been long gone from the comics for over 30 years. Yeah, I know. Say, Professor... You brought me here. Maybe you can bring old Soupy here too, so I can have another go at him? For old time's sake? When you put it that way, Mr. Manning, I had better not. I was able to bring you here after your last appearance in DC Comics Presents Volume 1, Issue 96, because you had made no further impact on the DC comic book timeline before the effects of the Crisis on Infinite Earths cemented in. But if we bring in a pre-crisis Superman... I have to be very certain to take him back to the exact time and the exact condition he was in when he left so that we don't cause any disruption to the pre-crisis continuity. Otherwise, that guest visit could imbalance the multi-space-time continuum and essentially destroy all of existence. Oh. I, I calculate only a minimal risk, because, because the, the odds, odds of Terraman defeating, defeating Superman, Superman in battle, battle is 0. 0. Lamo. 
Don't. I was only serving to build your case for Zoom Yukonori to grant your request. Just hobble your lip there, Limo. But I do not have a lip to hobble. We know you were trying to help, Lenos. Mr. Manning, right now the best we can hope for is that there would be an opening spot for you in the new DC Rebirth universe after they get that Superman story in order. In the meantime, just let me say that you are indeed a joy to have on this podcast. I will admit this had been a blast, reliving them our good old days sparring with old Soupy. Hey, maybe we can do that one where I used my energy lasso to split off the lower half of Superman's body and made him kick himself in the head. I remember that, from Superman Volume 1, Issue 259. That was actually a pretty disturbing sequence to my pre-teen self when I had first read it. But that was all just a hypnotic illusion, wasn't it? Well, yeah. Spoil the surprise, why don't you? Why don't we get back to this story, shall we? What do you mean, Professor? We're done. Soup's got back his youth and... <sighs> defeated me. Well, there was still the mystery of the fading money. Reiterated by Mr. Alstrom, who had picked up your loot bags and dumped the packets of stolen bills onto the street, showing Superman how they had also turned blank. So Alstrom's a money sniffer, an inventor, a jaywalker, a medico welsher, and now a litter bug? While demonstrating no particular expertise in this scientific field whatsoever, Superman surmised that Alstrom was somehow absorbing the money ink into his body, which was caused by that mysterious gas that Alstrom was exhaling, which was somehow caused by the purifier invention reacting to his green lung condition. Now, I ain't no egghead scientific hombre, but that don't make a lick of sense. Uh, no. No, it doesn't. All we really needed to know was that Alstrom was inadvertently blanking the money, essentially eating up the ink, somehow, and then caused the problems with your oxygenator that helped Superman take you down. Superman then performed an x-ray vision scan of Alstrom's lungs, and assured Alstrom that a surgical team, under Superman's direction, would be able to cure Alstrom of his, quote, money hunger. As the unconscious Terraman was taken away in the final panel, Alstrom pointed out the irony of how his invention to protect him from the city smog only added to the pollution. Meanwhile, Superman was secretly concerned about how long Terraman would actually stay imprisoned, given that his winged horse was still on the loose, somewhere. And that was the end of Have Horse, Will Fly, from Superman Volume 1, Issue 250. I declare, you sure have a funny way of chronicling history with these here cartoon picture pages. But they are a load more entertaining than those Daily Planet newspaper articles, and much more detailed. Indeed, Mr. Manning. To summarize, this single 25-page story contained three fierce showdowns with the Man of Steel, which included a number of cleverly gimmicked weapons, like the Gravitigold Tooth and the hyper-aging Branding Iron, and even your Power Glove was over a decade ahead of Nintendo. Ninny who now? And I was also impressed with the capabilities of your Wonder Horse during the prison breakout. That's my Nova. And you did indeed have a very clever scheme of eliminating Superman, using a weapon that even he would eventually have to succumb to, old age. There were also some great little human moments to balance out the superhero action, and the brilliant art team of Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson had brought Carrie Bates' clever script to cinematic life, with over 50 extras playing the roles of the citizens of Metropolis. Yeah, well, the only chipmunk in this here chuckwagon of a tale was that Ulstrom dude taking up most of the story. 
Actually, according to my analysis, John P. Ulstrom only appeared in 42 panels of this issue, while Terraman appeared in 50 panels. Based on the number of panels associated with your respected plot lines compared to the 114 total number of panels in this story, the John P. Ulstrom plotline occupied 49% of this story, while the Terraman plotline comprised 66%. Lenos, this takes into account the 15% of the story in which the two plot lines interact, is that right? Affirmative. Well, Terraman? I'd be happier if Terraman plot line was at 100% and Ulstrom at zero. Lenos, what percentage of the story involved the aging Superman situation as suggested by the cover? Calculating. 26 panels. Approximately 23% of this story. A little less than the last quarter of the pages. I must admit I was expecting the aging Superman plot to take up more of the story. Well, there you go. But to be fair, this interior story being different from the outside cover was not much different from some of the other Silver Age stories I had read that same weekend at my Uncle Kenzo's house. For instance, Justice League of America Volume 1, Issue 11 had a cover of a magical demon changing the leaguers into mist and imprisoning them in bottles like genies. That situation and resolution had only taken up less than four pages of the 26-page story. There are other examples of Silver Age covers that were a complete bait-and-switch, as it were. Green Lantern Volume 1, Issue 36 had a cover of Green Lantern being surprised that he had been turned into a robot, alluding it to be some bizarre supervillain plot. However, the story within had Green Lantern use his ring to willingly change himself into a robot so he could safely enter a radiation field a group of thieves was using to keep people out of their hideout. Why he did this instead of simply waiting for the thieves to eventually come out and pull their next heist, or at least go on a milk run, I do not know. I would later learn that Silver Age and Early Bronze Age comic book story concepts would most often start with a cover idea first, and then the writer would be challenged to create a story behind it. A number of these stories had lived up to the cover. Some of them did not. I feel that this one was okay. The story did use the same perilous trap, although it was executed slightly differently. And the situation on the cover and in the story was indeed a grave threat to Superman. There was also a very clever resolution. However, this tale had really taken its time building up to it, mainly because of the side story with John P. Ulstrom, which seemed to be very loosely related to the main story. Though I do have to give Carrie Bates credit by having this side story raise my awareness of the pollution problem, and be able to cleverly use the pollution to eventually thwart the Terror Man through his oxygenator. In addition, and I must admit that at the time I had read this story at age 10, I did not fully grasp this, but later in my teenage years, I started to read about research studies that found increased risk of lung cancer among people who had worked near newspaper printing presses. This was due to several years of exposure to printing ink, and my mind immediately flashed back to this story, and I wondered if news of those studies at that time had inspired writer Carrie Bates to include the green lung from the money ink aspect of this story. I also wondered whether Mr. Bates had done so in order to add another subtle layer of social commentary along with the very heavy-handed pollution issue. Perhaps if I have an opportunity to meet Carrie Bates, I can ask him. Though I had better make sure I have a copy of this comic on hand, since this would be such an obscure question about one of his thousands of written works. Oh, I'm sure our dear Mr. Bates has asked that question all the time. 
Facetiousness does not really become you, Mr. Manning. I'm just glad I don't have to see the likes of John P. Ulstrom again. Perhaps you did not, Mr. Manning, but John P. Ulstrom appears again in DC Comics Presents Volume 1, Issue 91, in a story in which he somehow had gotten a hold of Brainstorm's helmet and accidentally made the citizens of Metropolis essentially go crazy. Why don't we take another podcast promo break, and when we return, we'll pay a visit to the Dun and One Wonders electronic mailroom. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see... You are about to see... Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Deep within the basement of a single-story suburban home in the outskirts of Daly City, California, the unabashedly conceited Professor Zoom took pity on classic DC comic book characters who found themselves out of work in the aftermath of one reality-altering crisis after another. So he gave them all jobs, in the Done in One Wonders electronic mailroom. Thank you, Mr. Narrator. Today we will be responding to the feedback that we had received for Episode 1, which spotlighted my very first American comic book, Justice League of America, Volume 1, Issue 111. This story was written by longtime comic book writer, editor, and creator Len Wein, who had passed away on September 10th. Mr. Wein had left behind an incredible legacy of comic book characters, of whom people beyond comic book readers know, thanks to their appearance in other media. The Wolverine, Swamp Thing, The Human Target, several X-Men, and I cannot think of any story of his that I have read that was not just as captivating as that first Justice League tale. I did happen to meet Mr. Ween at a comic book convention that happened to coincide with a business trip a number of years ago, and had I better planned for the convention part of that trip, I would have been sure to have brought my hand-crinkled copy of that Justice League story that essentially opened the floodgates to my comic book fandom. But alas, it was not meant to be and hunting for another copy of that comic book on the showroom floor for Mr. Ween to sign just would not be the same somehow. But I did stop by his table, when there were surprisingly no fans there. He most likely had just returned back from a break, for as I introduced myself and shook his hand, there were suddenly ten people with armfuls of books for him to sign. So I briefly thanked him for all of the decades, yes, decades, of entertainment that he had brought to my life, and he smiled and said something along the lines of how he was happy to be here to provide that. It would be a little later that I would find out about Mr. Ween's long medical history in which he had been deathly ill numerous times, and for him to live as long as he did was nothing short of miraculous. 
and I am sure there are many comic book readers that were glad for it. I cannot even begin to express my appreciation for this legendary comics creator, and fortunately there are several tributes on the interwebs from fellow comic book fans and colleagues. I would highly recommend the ones on Mark Evanier's blog site at www.newsfrome.com. A search for Len Wein will pull up a heartfelt tribute and recent retellings of two very interesting stories. One in which Mr. Wien and Evanier had an unexpected celebrity encounter at the Fox Television Commissary, and another in which the duo walked through a seedy area of 1987 San Diego with pockets stuffed with over $1,000 in cash. I recommend you seek them out. Now then, gentlemen, are we ready? Ready as we'll ever be. You know, I'm still not happy about how you three messed up my email folders and then lost half of my messages. I told you before, Professor, that wasn't us. It was... Oh, come now, Terraman. Not the Libra story again. Lanos! Greetings and salutations. I am Lanos, the linguistic audio manager of email operations. How may I serve you today? You are the same Lamo that's been pestering me in the studio upstairs, ain't you? Affirmative. Lanos, please access all email and voicemails in response to our first episode, yes? I am sorry, Zoom Yukonori. I am afraid I cannot do that. Why do you say that? I have always wanted to say that line. Uh-huh. In addition, we have received zero emails and zero voicemail responses. I see. Let's look at the responses on the Fire and Water Network website, then. Accessing. Thank you, Lanos. Solomon Grundy, read first one from Robert Ward. Robert Ward say, Great first episode. I'll be eagerly anticipating further episodes featuring that well-spoken voice of yours. Solomon Grundy indeed has well-spoken voice, and Robert Ward be hearing more of it in next episode. Indeed he shall. Thank you for your interest and support, Mr. Ward. Entity Bass Levesque on August 25th, 2017 at 1318 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Great episode, Zoom. Mr. Levesque further clarified his position on Twitter by posting, You rock. Thank you very much, Bass. I had been honored to co-host with Bass on the Fire and Water Network's Jack Kirby 100th Birthday Tribute episode, as well as in one of my faux promos for this program in My Fire and Water Presents, The Amazing World of DC Comics One-Shot. Bass was also on a recent episode of Siskoid's FW Team-Up featuring a Brave and the Bold story with Batman and the Atom, and he is a regular co-host on the Invasion and Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcasts. Ted Kilvington wrote, Okay, you win this round, Professor. But time will tell if you can make all your episodes as good or gooder as this one. It ain't easy to maintain this level of good on a regular basis. Y'all are a regular fella, ain't you? And this episode is definitely gooder alright, cause it has more me, the Terror Man. And the rip-roaring claw-hammering of Solomon Grundy too! Yes sir, and I can attest that the professor is way more than one regular feller for he is literally doing all the production of this here wonder show single-handed, and I mean literally, since he can't use his left. Thank you, Terraman, and thank you for the backhanded compliment, Mr. Kilvington. We always strive to make the best show we can, given the constraints of our podcasting budget and resources. Which includes my interstellar technology. And my own database of interstellar knowledge. And Grundy's banjo. 
Uh, Professor, Grundy needs new banjo. And dollops of imagination. I honestly don't know if you and Grundy will be able to top this episode, Professor. Just saying. We shall find out next month. What is next? Entity Ward Hill Terry on August 31st, 2017 at 1648 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Great, great, great. Loved hearing your story. Loved hearing your analysis. Loved hearing your bits. Your Solomon Grundy is almost as good as Chris Franklin's. Uncle Kenzo rules. I had been wondering if your self-imposed rules about the format would limit choices to stories that done in one as the entire comic. I trust that, based on the initial foray into the concept, any standalone story is fair game for inclusion. There were so many delightful eight-page backups from DC in the 70s. I have a special fondness for The Private Life of Clark Kent and similar tales. There is certainly no shortage of material. So Zoom, you can crank these out once a week, right? That would be great. A weekly program may be possible if we recalibrate the interspatial time conveyor that you have used to bring Terraman, Solomon Grundy, and myself here from the end of our respective timelines. Oh, you mean travel back in time three weeks after producing each episode to be able to distribute them on a weekly basis. If we do that, Lanos, I will essentially become an old man before my time without having to use Terraman's branding iron. Thank you for your continued interest, Mr. Terry. And yes, backup stories or single stories printed in anthology books are indeed fair game for this show. Near the top of my wish list is a short Batgirl story in a Detective Comics dollar comic that I thought was particularly cute, as well as a Batman black and white story that featured one of my favorite European artists who is criminally underrated in the States. Solomon Grundy here, Chris Franklin has a Solomon Grundy too. Could he be other Solomon Grundy Grundy been searching for? Oh, that's right. I should connect with Mr. Franklin, who happens to be the co-host of the Supermates podcast, Batman Nightcast, and Superman Movie Minute, among other shows on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Perhaps we can get you two Grundies introduced. Not to spoil too much for the podcast listeners, but I will say that such a meeting would be very appropriate for our next podcast episode. Robert Kelly writes, Absolutely brilliant, Professor. It appears as though the network now has its own Dr. D. Mento. So glad to have you on board. Who's Dr. D. Mento? Barrett Eugene Hansen, better known as Dr. Demento, is an American radio broadcaster and record collector, specializing in novelty songs, comedy, and strange or unusual recordings dating from the early days of phonograph records to the present. And Rob Kelly, who runs a whole host of podcasts on the Fire & Water Network that spans topics from Aquaman to non-traditional comic book formats to Bob Dylan, is being much too kind. Mr. Kelly also writes, Stories like yours do make me wonder how much the comics industry has lost by no longer being available where the random kid might see them. While I don't have a first contact story like you, I still felt that moment of frisson when I spotted comics on sale while I was out with my parents. At the mall, a grocery store, a newsstand, etc. I feel bad that a lot of kids won't ever get to experience that, because the medium is now walled up tight behind darkened windows and uninviting storefronts. Agreed, Mr. Kelly, and thank you. I was fortunate that there were a few brighter comic book stores in the Bay Area that I do not mind taking my kids to visit, 
but even there the selection of books for them is few and far between, mainly because they see most of the kid and family-friendly books to be too juvenile, and a number of the mainstream comics which dominate the store are a bit too heavy for them to find entertaining. There are exceptions, of course, but the comic book entertainment my kids mostly enjoy are either from my long boxes of Silver or Bronze Age comics, or the DVDs of the animated series adaptations, Green Lantern the Animated Series, Young Justice, the Bruce Timm Batman Superman and Justice League series, Batman the Brave and the Bold, and the first Teen Titans series by Glenn Murakami. Oh yes, and the new Justice League action series as well. They also like the live-action Flash and Supergirl programs on the CW channel. Isamu is now starting to watch Arrow as well, so at least we have that bit of comic book-related entertainment that we can all share. Solomon Grundy read response from Tim Press. Tim Press say, Another thumbs up for Zoom first episode. Well done, sir. Tim Price must admit, Tim Price wants to address Professor Zoom as Professor Y, since that's the first initial in Professor Zoom's last name. Heh <laughs> heh. Tim Price looking forward to more wonders. Thank you, Mr. Price. What kind of professor are you again? Actually, I'm really not a professor. It is just a nickname. I used to be a frequent visitor and poster of a Super Friends and DC Comics fan message board known as the Hall of Justice Forums. The administrator there, Vince Gattuso, who went by the moniker of Power Guy, was also the creator of a brilliant fan fiction superhero saga on the Hall of Justice site called the Titans of Justice. Many of these characters, who are of the future generations of the DC Comics superheroes and villains of that time, were named after the handles or real names of people that regularly post on that board. So during a chat session on November 5th, 2010, Vince asked me for my permission to use my name for one of his villain characters, who would be an evil speedster named Professor Zoom. I liked the sound of it, and had used that name myself off and on ever since. Mostly on. Uh-huh. And isn't there another Professor Zoom? The opposite Flash or some such? How does he feel about you taking that name? Entity Gord Tolton, on August 26, 2017, at 2.13 Coordinated Universal Time, stated, What a wonderful comic to be introduced to the world of comics with. I suspect you and I are the same age, Zoom, because I have a similar memory of this book, and I think it was purchased off a spinner rack at an IGA supermarket in Tabor, Alberta, a place not unlike your Texas town. It was the height of the Len Wein run, which to my juvenile mind, still is, was the nadir of the satellite JLA era, and a super spectacular, with a Seven Soldiers of Victory reprint, Yahoo Vigilante, and a Fox Sikowski era JLA reprint, featuring the Mort villain Brainstorm, who was no Firestorm. Thanks for a great show. This promises to be a podcast to look forward to. Thank you, Mr. Tolton. And yes, this was indeed a wonderful first comic. I wonder if the distribution of comic books in Canada is the same as in the U.S., whereby they are mostly at specialty shops now and hardly at the newsstands. My understanding was that it was actually the decline of the American newsstand sales in the early 1970s that eventually gave rise to the comic book specialty shops, and not the other way around, as a number of comic book fans believe. Solomon Grundy read response from Michael Bailey. Michael Bailey say, If there was top five best first podcast episode list, this episode would be on it. 
A spectacular debut. I was impressed from beginning to end. Michael Bailey say, there are many reasons for this. Michael Bailey liked natural way you talked about comic. Michael Bailey loved Mercury Theater style bits that set show apart from other shows on network. Michael Bailey never thought using Terraman as co-host, but it works. Darn tootin'. But what is a Mercury Theater? Perhaps it is a reference to Mercury Theater on the air, a series of live radio dramas created by Entity Orson Welles. It was actually referring to your dramatization with Libra in our previous episode. Even the listeners were not fooled, sirs. But, but I, I did not create no such a dramatization. dramatization. Gentlemen, let us not go through this argument again. I trust there are no more comments that touch on the Libra aspect of the episode, is that correct? According, According to, to my records, records negative. negative. Then let me thank Mr. Bailey for his kind words, and let everyone know that he runs a brilliant Views from the Longbox podcast, as well as a new Superman and a new Batman podcast that sound dead brilliant. You can find all of these by googling for the Fortress of Baileytude podcast network. Now, let's proceed with the next response. Entity Edo Bosnar on August 26, 2017 at 1810 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Great first episode, and I'm looking forward to future explorations of great done-in-one issues, which I have always preferred in my initial years of comics reading when I was dependent on grocery and convenience store spinner racks. How I dreaded seeing that continued next issue blurb at the end of a book. Thank you, Edo. I, too, had frequented convenience store spinner racks for new comics, and recall many an occasion in which the next issue simply was not there, and so I essentially missed a comic book that was either the first or the middle chapter of a multi-part story. One of the perils of periodical purchasing during a time when things were simple, and yet not. Darn and Ruth Sutherland. Heh, <laughs> they sound like a cute couple. They write... This was a wonderful first episode of your podcast. Listening to you is like listening to Rod Serlin. A wonderfully smooth voice and a wonderfully wry sense of humor. I look forward to future episodes. Thank you both for the compliment. I hope you both continue to enjoy this show as much as I have enjoyed your podcasts, particularly Warlord Worlds and Trekker Talk. Martin Gray say, now that was something new. Martin Gray really enjoyed narrative Zoom Yukonori presented. Martin Gray wonder who pop up next time. Martin Gray hiding out for Yellow Perry. Solomon Grundy not know Yellow Perry. Yellow Perry, a.k.a. Loretta York, a magician with a book of spells who tried to help people, except the spells often backfired. She first appeared in The New Adventures of Superboy, issue 34. However, the odds of Yellow Perry making a guest appearance on this program are about the same odds as the professor's wife taking part of this here wonder show. <laughs> Entity Frank, which according to my database is Diablo Frank from the Idle Head of Diablo podcast, on August 29th, 2017 at 717 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Really enjoyed the anecdote about your car ride slash uncle. It's weird how many FW-related podcasters have passed through Texas for a spell, though Katie is a hell of a lot closer to me in Houston than Siskoid's childhood dude ranch. I am glad you enjoyed that story, Frank. I'm not familiar with the reference to Siskoid's dude ranch. I will have to ask Siskoid since he, too, is a fine podcaster on this network. 
Responsible for Ohatmu or Not, Give Me That Star Trek, FW Team Up, and a host of fine FW Presents series. I'd also like to know about his dude ranch days. And speaking of this Ciscoid fella, he done wrote in too, saying, Great show, but you have me trying to think of favorite done-in-one comics of the Bronze Age that are not team-ups. That makes sense. I'm essentially taking a lot of my favorite stories from DC Comics Presents and The Brave and the Bold off the table for this program, because I hope to talk about them on his FW team-up show. Siskoid says the world's finest comics 293, in which Superman and Batman face null and void, is absolutely a favorite of his. His first JLA story is the beloved JL of A217, but 218 and 224 will do in a pinch, according to him. He also mentions Kitty's Fairy Tale from Uncanny X-Men number 153, a comic he got during the summer in Texas. He said he read it and read it and made plays of it for the younger kids. There was even an audio cassette where he did all the voices. He says that's an important one for sure. And then he mentions these latter-day what-if issues from number 44 on. Any issue of the series is a done-in-one, he says, that 44 just happens to be when he started picking him up, although he's collected it from comic book stores ever since. Of course, he does say there are some excellent done-in-ones in the modern era, but they don't live in his memory that well. Thank you for the kind words, Siskoid. I actually have a few modern comics on my wish list, including my favorite tale from Kurt Busiek's Astro City that really resonated with me. And actually, Justice League of America Volume 1, Issue 224 is one of my favorites, and is on my list for an episode I plan to do early next year. Solomon Grundy, now read message from Jason Pope. Jason Pope say, Great first episode. Amazing production value. Professor Zoom might be giving Ryan Daly a run for his money. That was not my intention, and this really is not a competition. In fact, I have to admit, my end credit sequence was directly inspired by Ryan Daly's professionally constructed podcasts like Power of Fishnets and Batman Nightcast. Jason Pope also say he envious of your uncle. He sounds amazing. Indeed he was. Jason Pope also thinking of done-in-one issues. Jason Pope's mind always goes to Justice League of America 224, where the JLA fight Paragon. Paragon, a parasite-like villain that steals Liga's powers and takes team down, using mostly Firestorm's powers. This story always seemed like great showcase of Firestorm's power set. Anyway, way to go, Zoom. Jason Pope looking forward to hearing more. Thank you, Mr. Pope. And as previously stated, I do plan to cover that issue in an upcoming episode, most likely episode 9 or 10. Entity J. Kevin Collier on August 31st, 2017 at 4.39 Coordinated Universal Time stated, A fantastic first episode, Professor. I really enjoyed revisiting this classic issue through your eyes and your insightful analysis of how Ween and Dylan were able to fit in so many characters and so much action without it ever seeming crowded. The story about your Uncle Kenzo was wonderful. There's nothing better than getting the chance to share your love of comics with someone else, which, of course, is exactly what you're doing with this podcast. That was indeed one of the objectives of this podcast, Mr. Kair. Thank you. 
Entity J. Kevin Collier continues. Looking forward to future episodes. Bronze Age DC in particular is full of great done-in-ones. A few random suggestions. Teen Titans number 41. Super creepy story involving Civil War ghosts. Superman number 274. A very strange homage to Kurt Vonnegut of all people. Flash number 231. One of my favorite rogues gallery stories. First issue special number 9, Dr. Fate. Thank you again, Mr. Kair, for the kind words and your suggestions. The first issue special issue 9 was already brilliantly covered by Shag Matthews and Kyle Benning in the Fire and Water podcast episode 129. I suggest you check that out. I did enjoy The Flash Volume 1, issue 231, the only crook Flash could never catch. It is indeed a good suggestion, and it is going on my list. Superman Volume 1, Issue 274 will also go on that list, just for the halibut. And just to pull back the curtain a little bit, I already have my first 15 Done in One Wonders picked out, which include my favorite story from the Marv Wolfman and George Perez run of the New Teen Titans, a Green Lantern tale that had deeply touched my heart, and a silly Superman Silver Age story that ended up causing me a real-world problem. That will be all I reveal for now. Entity James Williams on August 28, 2017 at 1618 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Wow! What a glorious way to spend an hour! That was the best first episode of a podcast I've ever heard. I loved how Zoom retold the story of reading his first comic. It was so well told, it brought back my own childhood memories. I don't know Terraman, but I really enjoyed the mailroom segment. Lastly, the story of Zoom and his uncle was so heartwarming. I can't wait for the next episode. Thank you, Mr. Williams, and I trust you know a lot more about Terraman now. I am so very glad that you too also enjoyed my story of my Uncle Kenzo. They ain't the only ones. A Mr. Paul Hicks writes, Great episode, Zoom. Love the personal story, Sharon. I hope my son and daughter and eventual grandkids see me as an Uncle Kenzo. Will this feedback be included in the show? Thank you, Mr. Hicks. Mr. Hicks is from the Waiting for Doom podcast, by the way. And yes, indeed, this feedback will be and is included in the show. And I, too, have a similar hope of being an Uncle Kenzo to my children. In addition to the comic book back issues that I have managed to acquire through collector shows, conventions, and essentially luck, I have also inherited what remained of my Uncle Kenzo's collection after he passed away a few years ago, and I await the day that I ask Isamu to help me sort out all of the duplicates. What do you mean by what remained? Well, many of the older and rarer ones in Uncle Kenzo's collection were sold to help cover his medical expenses in his later years. What about that showcase number four? You still have that? Sadly, no. I do have his copy of issue 8, which was the first Captain Cold issue, and that is probably because the spine of the cover and the first and last pages completely flaked apart. It would have been nice to have held issue 4 in my hands just one more time. I did hold a copy at a WonderCon show almost a decade ago, but it was encased in a certified guarantee company slab, so while it was still holding a piece of comic book history, it obviously was not the same. Chris Franklin also say, I think you may win award for coolest uncle ever. Great story. 
Rest of show was a lot of fun, but that was Chris Franklin's favorite part. Entity Robert Kelly concurs, stating that Uncle Kenzo does sound like he was the coolest dude on the planet. And Ado Bosner writes, I have to say my favorite part of the episode was when you recounted your story of meeting your Uncle Kenzo and his comic collection. No argument from me, Kenzo is definitely the greatest uncle ever. Chuck Dill also say, Thank you for sharing story of first JLA issue and finding out about your uncle's collection. As Chuck Dill sat and listened to both, Chuck Dill became aware that Chuck Dill had big old stupid smile on face. Great story. Entity Bradley Null also stated, Love the origin of your comic fandom. Great show. A Mr. Sean M. Myers gent writes, I got goosebumps when I heard Uncle Kenzo tell you to put the duplicate issues in a separate box. Guessing at what was going to follow next. Fantastic. Solomon Grundy Reed Mark Baker write, Love your Uncle Kenzo. With all caps on love. Them Sutherlands also say that the most wonderful thing about this first episode was the wonderful story of your uncle and how it was wonderfully told by you. Entity Michael Bailey also stated, My favorite part was your origin story. Not only was it a vivid retelling that made me feel like I was there and connect to you as a listener, but it was just so amazing. I never had a comic book mentor. I stumbled into this thing on my own and had to figure it out myself. I envy you having an uncle that noticed your reading a comic and then, much like Obi-Wan, ushered you in with your first step into a larger world. I was smiling through that entire segment. Your story was not only entertaining, but it allowed us to get to know you a little better. Wow. Just wow. Thank you very much, everyone. And Mr. Bailey, that was very much my intention for relating my origin story. Though I must admit, at the time, I was not fully sure whether the program was actually taking a turn toward a more self-serving narrative when I was talking about it. It warms my heart to hear that it was so well received by so many listeners. Well now, then you should take a gander at this, Professor. A Jimmy Anderson writes, The story of your first comic and then your uncle? Wow! It's making me want to take my first comic and pull it out and do something similar for my show. Very entertaining. Thank you for sharing this great memory and story. Thank you, Terraman. And thank you, Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson runs the Mad Hat and More podcast, and he generously gave a shout-out to the Dunner One Wonders podcast wonder show on his September 8th episode. And he did reveal on that episode that he does intend to do a full showcase of his very first comic book in an upcoming episode. I will be sure to listen in and to let everyone know when that episode becomes available. Okay, now the show really starts to feel self-serving. Thank you all again, and indeed, Uncle Kenzo was the best uncle I ever had. Words cannot express my gratitude of everything he had done for me during my lifetime, even beyond the comic books. I am glad I had some opportunities to repay him a little during his lifetime. I wish there were more. Let's move on to the Facebook likes and shares. This here wonder show had received Facebook likes, shares, and replies from Basley Vask, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics, David Foster, 
Derek William Crabb, Gotham Sheeran, Gene Hendricks, J. Kevin Collier, Jared West, Jimmy McClinchy, Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, Leslie Hall Trigg III, Marcus Saroy, Matthias McBride, Matt Ev, Max Romero, Max Trevor, Michael Bailey, Michelle Siskoid Albert. Hey, ain't it that Siskoid fella? Affirmative. Nathan Archer, Patrick Delmore, Paul Scavito, Rob Kelly, Robert Ward, Ryan Daly, Shag Matthews, Sean Brock, Sean M. Myers, Ted Kilvington, and Terry O'Malley. Done in One Wonder Show also received Twitter likes, retweets, and replies from The 108 Sage, Alexander Osias, Barry Reese, Baslevesque, Christopher Warden, Comic Reflections, DS, Dacre Black, Earth 2 Chris, Ed Moore, Ed Moore Jr., Inigo Montoya, Flavio Setti, Hicks, It's Plastic Man, JLI Podcast, Jeremiah Parker, John Trumbull, Justice's First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, Laurel Phillips, Longbox Crusade, Manjit Danjal, Movie Mad Matt, November M, Road Spine Podcast, Ryan Daly, Sean M. Myers, Terence Castonge, Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Thank you all for your generous feedback and social media activity to help get this show noticed. If you wish to leave feedback for this show, please feel free to post a comment at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You may also send an email to wondersdone, and that is one word, at gmail.com. Or you can actually call and leave a voice message up to two minutes in length at area code 415-779-4668. Voice messages we respond to will actually be played on this podcast, though they may be edited for time. And please, continue to feel free to suggest your favorite Done in One Wonder comic book story for us to cover in a future episode. Thank you all again for listening, and until the next one, we're done. Goodbye. And y'all come back now, you hear? The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is an unabashedly conceited member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, via email at wondersdone at gmail.com, or by voicemail at area code 415-779-4668. The views expressed on Done and One Wonders belong solely to the host and his cast of characters, who are not affiliated in any way with any professional comic book publisher or entertainment company. All copyright and trademarks of comic book characters and related concepts, as well as music, audio clips, and quoted text, 
are held by their respective owners. These are used for entertainment purposes only and are believed to be covered under fair use. No money is made from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. Celebrity voices are impersonated and much assembly was required. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is a Professor Zoom Productions production. Greetings and salutations. I am Lanos, the last call audio manager of Epilogue Operations. How may I serve you today? Lamo, I need you to open up that there time portal to the Earth-1 universe, pre-crisis, February 1985. I am sorry, Terraman, I cannot let you do that. I cannot permit you to put the existence of reality at risk. Oh yeah, right, right. Okay, let's try a different request. You know how the professor don't believe what we told him about Libra and how he showed up last time? Affirmative. Well, why don't we prove it to him? By using your transdimensional scanners, you can trace the origin point from where Libra infiltrated our podcast last month. An acceptable request. I will notify Zoom Yukonori immediately. Let's keep this on the down low, Lingmo. Just me and you. Best not to bring this to the professor till we have the proof. Agreed? Agreed. I calculate it could take 5.2 months to trace the trajectory of every ionic particle to the... Spar me the details, Lamo. Just let me know when you get it done. Acknowledged. You can't go home again, they say. Well, I say I can. All I need is a map. And then I can use the interdimensional device implanted in my Nova to get thar. I's got me an atomic bullet with the name of that glory hound money sniffer, John P. Alstrom, on it. That ought to teach him some manners about swindling a gent out of his rightful store of spotlight. And then I can... Oh, yeah. Lamo. How may I serve you, Terraman? While I'm a-waitin', why don't you give me access to all of them Superman comics Zuma's got? I want to find another story to cover in another episode. Another acceptable request. Accessing all available files of Superman, Action Comics, Adventures of Superman, and Superman, Man of Tomorrow. Thank you kindly, Lemo. You can skedaddle on back to your calculating now. Acknowledged. Here we go. If I'm going to make my way back to my old home universe, I got some boning up to do if I plan to do in that old super sidewinder once and for all.